Hello, everyone. Welcome back. I'm super excited. Todd, great interview. We have a fantastic guest. I'm, st I'm still cavelling. You, you broke out the Hebrew on air and everything. I mean, come on, I know. Jack. I know. I know. What can <laughs> I tell you? But we got a great guest on. We have the author of Downstairs at the White House. This is a great book, by the way. I don't know how much it was on Amazon, but it's definitely worth the read. We're going to bring this guy on a minute. His name's Don Stinson. He's a newspaper guy. Somehow, he'll tell us in a minute, he got a job, I think he was like 17 or something like that, at the White House. And could you imagine a 17-year-old with all the testosterone and craziness at the White House? And it happened to be, I think, toward the the tail end of the Nixon administration. This guy worked right outside the Oval Office. Sinatra was involved. Spiro Agnew, uh, Nancy, uh, not Pat, Pat Nixon, not Nancy Reagan. He, this guy knows everyone. So let's bring him on. A lot of funny <laughs> stuff. Uh, Don, are you with us? I am. Hello. Hi, Don. I, I appreciate your time. I like I like the promotion behind you. That's good. I wonder why more of our guests don't think of that, by the way. I always think that. <laughs> so I, I like you. You're a, I know you're a marketing and newspaper guy, and it shows it. Well, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be on your show. I've watched uh, a number of the episodes, and, and they are funny and interesting. So thanks thank for thank you. having me on. I'm very excited about this because I, I find the book humorous. I laughed. Um, it was just funny. Maybe you give the audience sort of the background on how you found yourself working at the Oval Office during the <laughs> Nixon administration, during not only the Nixon administration, during Watergate. Right. I mean, no, right. no joke. This man is literally a real Forrest Gump. I mean, that's, that's, that's what it is. I, I don't know, but he really is one of the few people who've had a front seat at history in the making, like no one else has had, or Amazing. very few people have had. Well, it, it was fascinating. It, it was an accident. Uh, I, I went to, uh, in my uh, junior year of high school, there was a program that was available uh, to enter college after your junior year of high school, and, and somehow I stumbled into that and ended up at American University and um, then stumbled into a job uh, because of somebody I met one day. I'd been looking for a job. I, I needed to, uh, I had a lot of bills to pay back in those days. And um, I was looking for a job, and everybody in the world had turned me down. Finally, I meet one guy in the dorm one day who happened to have a job working in this funny place I'd never heard of called the old executive office building. And he, uh, he said that he wasn't interested in the job any longer. It wasn't his major. Uh, and maybe I'd be interested. Well, I, I had no idea what it was. And the sad story is, is that it was a couple of days before I actually realized that I worked inside the White House complex. So is that what happens? You can't get a job, so you get a job at the White House? Is that, <laughs> that kind of like... <laughs> yeah. that, that, is, that is the Forrest Gump lifestyle. Yeah, that's like an analogy on the times. Yeah. <laughs> <There you laughs> are. So I, I first worked for an assistant to the president named Peter Flanagan, who was a wonderful man, who is actually, uh, interestingly enough, was a descendant of the Bush family of Anheuser-Busch. And he uh, also was behind uh, America's development of the space shuttle. 
He was a brilliant fellow, and I, he was an assistant to the president for international economic affairs. I had no idea what that was. But I did have a job as a messenger and a clerk. And uh, for those who might be old enough to remember this, um, I, I, I really rose in the ranks, and I became what was known as a key operator. And that meant you knew how to fix the Xerox machine back in those days that were about the size of battleships. Mm. So as a messenger, what did you have to do, like take stuff back and forth from the White House? I think I read that you had to deliver stuff to, I think it was the Senate Republicans every day or something like that. Yeah, actually, well, I had that job. And then I went on to work for Vice President Agnew and then, and then uh, in the White House proper. But um, at that time, um, and, and I started there in February of 1973, uh, oddly enough, also, I had a, I had a top-secret security clearance before I was old enough to vote. Um, the, th there was a lady who would come and visit me every day uh, during the Senate Watergate committee meetings. It could have all been uh, just a uh, coincidence. But she would hand me a package that was a, just a, a, an envelope that did not say the White House on it. It was just a plain vanilla envelope. And I was to deliver it to Capitol Hill, usually to the office of a Republican member of the Senate Watergate Committee. And I did that sometimes several times a day. Um, that had its dividends um, for a lot of different reasons. But also because I was a kid and, and, and because I did the same kind of things that people that age do when you don't have a fully formed frontal lobe yet. Um, I did things like sneak on the senator's only elevator in the Capitol. Um, that, I got busted one day by uh, Barry Goldwater and Hugh Scott. Goldwater, I'm sure everybody knows he was the... the Hugh, Hugh Scott was, I think, the senator of Pennsylvania. And uh, he, uh, and, and Hugh Scott, who was the minority leader of the Senate, they busted me. But I got to know them as a result, so that was that was fun, and and they would they, they were very kind to me over time. But but in any event, I would take those things up there during the Watergate hearing. Um, then one day in um, somewhere late in the summer of 1973, I was walking down the hall uh, in the old executive office building, uh, which is a fantastic building. Most visitors to Washington don't know anything about it. But it, it used to be the old State, Navy, and War building. And as a matter of fact, uh, it, right in one of the offices uh, where one of my uh, friends on this uh, president, assistant to the president's staff worked was the same spot where Japanese emissaries had come on December 7th, 1941, to tell the Secretary of State that uh, they were hoping for peace at the same time they were dropping bombs on Pearl Harbor. It was, uh, it's a building that's steeped with incredible history. Um, but one day I was walking down the hallway and I wasn't paying attention, which was something that I, I often found myself doing. <laughs> and I bumped into a guy literally who had a, um, I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember, but percolators and you carry the big coffee thing and fill it up with water and such. And uh, he had that, I ran right into him and knocked him over um, on the floor, got him wet and everything else. He turned out to be one of Spiro Agnew's speechwriters, and we got to be friends. And eventually, I ended up with a job. Then upstairs uh, in the in the EOB, answering vice president's mail. And 
what I can tell you is that uh, it is amazing what people will write to uh, our national leaders, even to the vice president. We had a lady who, uh, she claimed that she and her uh, family had been, as she said, cranially wired by the Martians. She sent a package to the vice president that included several uh, tinfoil, literally, tinfoil hats to be able to wear to shield ourselves from that. Um, we, we had any number of different kinds of weird stuff. And of course, because I was the kid, um, I got most all of it. And, um, but that again was another thing that led to something that was interesting that I, 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 and I've talked about all of these things in the book, but I one day opened, uh, my, uh, my boss left a garbage bag for me. Um, literally, that had been sent through the mail. I, I didn't even know you could do that, but it had stamps all over it, and it was stapled, and all this kind of thing, and she left it to me because it was special. And I opened it up and looked inside, and the first thing that I saw were these little pictures that had been cut out. They were little pornographic pictures, and, the, and a pair of broken electric scissors. But what was really disturbing about it uh, was that there were some rags in there that had a substance on it that looked like dried blood. So I took this down to the Vice Presidential Protective Division, the Secret Service, um, very delicately take that down to them. To them, um, it wasn't, uh, apparently it was not all that special. So you can imagine how weird things were even in those days. Um, they... Um, uh, they, they certainly looked at it, but they weren't, they weren't shocked by it. But while I was down there, I was getting a cup of coffee or looking for a donut, probably scrounging for food. And one of the Secret Service agents I was friendly with said to me, Don, I'd like you to meet Mr. Hill. And he, uh, and I turned and I didn't know who this guy was and I shook his hand. And uh, my friend said to me, hey, dummy, don't you know who that is? No. He said, that's Clint Hill. Now, for those who know about the Kennedy assassination, uh, Special Agent Clint Hill of the Secret Service was assigned to Jacqueline Kennedy that day in Dallas on November 22, 1963. He jumped off a moving vehicle, a follow-up car, and threw himself on top of President and Mrs. Kennedy uh, as the car sped uh, to Parkland Hospital in Dallas. Uh, he was the uh, first real American hero I ever met. And uh, he was, uh, I, I don't think anybody I've ever met out heroes went Hill on that day. But I went through a number of these kinds of circumstances where things just kind of happened. And in fact, to kind of close that story, uh, I ended up in the West Wing the next week um, and delivered something. And as I was coming, I went to the elevator and uh, of all people, uh, to get on the elevator was John Connolly, who had been the governor of Texas. He was the former Secretary of the Treasury at that time, but he had been the governor of Texas, and obviously he had been in the car in Dallas uh, on that day. Um, you know, his uh, wounds were the subject of uh, the Warren Commission's magic bullet, uh, or the, the magic bullet theory. Um, but I met and had a nice conversation with him. But, but as these things were going on, I started to realize that I was not just meeting um, interesting people, but I was people, meeting people who were in the history books. And um, so I ended up knowing uh, 
it, because I got to know Connolly better later on, two people who were in that car that day. Which is which was, uh, unbelievable. Right. Unbelievable. How was, out of curiosity, Vice President Agnew? Was he a nice guy to you? Or how did they, like, treat you when you're a kid at the White House? They ignore you? Or <laughs> was he talking well, to I, you? Well, uh, I'm sorry. If I end up talking, I'm having some trouble hearing you. But um, So forgive me in advance if I get a question. That's all right. Uh, the, first of all... Um, I was I was I was the one um, everybody knew but didn't know who he was. Um, I was just this. I was out of you know completely out of sync. I was the only one walking around I think with acne, and uh, uh, but people were very nice. In fact, I, I was you know I was I was kind of like the uh, pet rock around there. Um, people were both uh, fatherly, brotherly, motherly, and sisterly to me uh, most of the time. I. Vice President Agnew was a very nice gentleman. Um, he was certainly very nice to me. Uh, and, you know, particularly at that age, uh, you're particularly sensitive to those things, being around adults, and then not only being around adults, but the guy who was a heartbeat away from the presidency. But he very frequently used to ask me, you know, how I was doing in college and, and those kinds of things. And I got to know one of his daughters rather uh, well who helped us answer mail towards the end of his administration. Um, and, and any concern I mean, about, like, getting to know the vice president's daughter real well? <laughs> like, I, I don't know, my juvenile mind would think No, that. that's the yeah. right place I, to go. I, I, I knew her as a, as a lovely friend. I understand. Uh, I, I get but, it. I get it. Uh, Have you ever uh, met or heard of anyone else named Spiro since that time in the White House? Yeah, I actually did. <laughs> there you go. And, and I, there was a restaurant in Annapolis, Maryland. It might still be there that was called Spiro. Wow. Uh, there's two Spiros out there. Uh, Pat Nixon. Yes. I think you have some stories about her. I think she yelled at you and then saved you at one point or something like that. Oh, yeah, she saved me. Well, first of all, Mrs. Nixon was an absolutely, she was a, a charming, lovely woman. Um, and uh, she's been painted in, in various ways by, by the media over the years as perhaps not that, but I can attest to the fact that she was just wonderful. Um, what happened was one day, uh, now, now I had, after I had lost my job with Vice President Agnew when he resigned uh, and had gone over to Health Education and Welfare uh, Department to work, where, by the way, I had to quit in order to get paid. That's a a story that anybody who has experience with the government would read in the book and, and, uh, and I think relate to. Uh, but I ended up as a messenger in the East Wing. So I had, and I had the full run of the White House, at least on the, the, the main floor, which is the ground floor where tourists go. I could go up to the state rooms on occasion if I, if I uh, really wanted to. Uh, and all, really all the way from the East Wing to the West Wing, the Oval Office and, and such. So uh, one day I was walking um, east uh, back towards my little, the little cubbyhole office I had in the basement. Maybe sub-basement would be better to say of the East Wing. And there was, as I passed uh, through the residence, uh, there was a there was somebody standing with a scarf on back in the shadows. Uh, near the uh, family elevator, goes directly to the family uh, uh, up the floor, and, and so I, I said, 
uh, or as I went by, this voice yelled out, hey, kiddo, how you doing? And so I went, looked back and I said, hey, kiddo, how you doing? Because I, I assumed that it was one of the maids. Well, it wasn't. And somebody caught up to me later on to explain to me that that was Mrs. Nixon. I said that. Too. And I and they were not happy. Uh, how dare you, they said, call the first lady by anything other than Mrs. Nixon. And I said, it was a mistake. It was it, I, I, it was a mistake. Well, I thought I was going to get fired. And a couple of weeks later, um, I was uh, just trying to mind my own business and for once maintain a low profile, which didn't happen a lot because of all the things that I stumbled into. But the, uh, the phone rang one day and my boss handed it to me and said, someone wants to speak to you. And I took the phone and it was Mrs. Nixon calling uh, to tell me that not only was I not in trouble, but that I could call her kiddo anytime that I wanted and we went on and had a lovely conversation about my parents and uh, and and her life and other kinds of things. She was just absolutely, she was lovely, charming. That's How, great. When you were there, uh, I guess Watergate and the turmoil was at its maximum. Was it like a really tense environment? It sounds like Mrs. Nixon was sort of joking around and there was a lot of funny stories, but I'm picturing it from the outside as just as tense as you can get. Well, and you would be right. Um, it was you could have cut it. You could have cut the tension with a knife. Um, there were people who were not only, you know, a lot of these folks had given their lives to uh, Richard Nixon, uh, their professional lives, and uh, now to come down to the end as as things grew worse and worse by the hour. Um, there were a lot of tears. There were a lot of people who were. I mean, you know, you know, all of the different emotions that, that people go through in, in grief, the stages of emotion. And, and they were they were something that I certainly found, particularly at that age, something very interesting to watch. Um, there were people who absolutely denied that any of it was going on. Uh, I remember one woman who uh, used to um, always hold on to a cross as she walked around. She was very religious. And um, one day. Uh, somebody asked me, since I had already been through a resignation as if now I was a, uh, a, a, a an authority, uh, you know, what happened when, you, when, when your boss resigned from high office? And I just said, well, I left my job and the woman grabbed onto the, to the cross. I think she went and got a, one that was two or three times bigger after that. I think she thought that I was the devil incarnate just being around there. That was bad luck. But it was uh, it was very it, it, it was uh, nerve wracking. I mean, not for me. I I, I watched all of this. Um, I watched uh, as I would go to the West Wing. I'd watch the people who would go in and out of the out of the Oval Office. Um, uh, I I used to try to hang out whenever I could with uh, Rosemary Woods, who was the president's secretary. Um, I did not have anything to do with the eighteen and a half minute gap. Um, but I, it was it was interesting to watch the tension, and 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 it did indeed get worse every every day as things progressed. After the time, certainly after the time that the president had to turn over the uh, the tapes and the smoking gun tape. When did you decide that you were going to write a book about all of this? And I mean, <laughs> was that marinating over the years, or is that, I mean, is that something you always wanted to do or thought you would do? Well, um, 
I started on it a couple of years ago, but what I had done was I, I was actually bright enough, which was odd, to have kept some notes about some of the things that went on, about personalities, about certain events, what events looked like. Um, and so I had that to be able to go back on. And then I had to go and do a lot of research to be able to check my memory on events. But it, it took quite a while to write. But it, it was nothing that I, I really planned to do. But I ended up with the time available to be able to do it. Right. I heard a rumor that you dumped something on Frank Sinatra. Fact or fiction? <laughs> no, actually, I read yes, it I in the book. I read it in the book. Well, it really wasn't a rumor. <laughs> yes, that, that's, that's in the book. I... I uh, one of the things that the Nixons insisted on was that the White House staff be treated to as many nice things as possible. The Fords did, too, in the, afterward in the time that I was there. Uh, and one of the things that, that we would be allowed to do is to come over and listen to uh, dress rehearsals. And one of these dress rehearsals was for a state dinner for the president of Italy, who also, I've mentioned in the book, I got in a struggle with over getting into a men's room um, while he was there visiting. Um, it was not one of my grander moments. Uh, but I, uh, we, we, we were able to go over, and Frank Sinatra was the one who was, uh, who was doing the rehearsal. And I happened to end up, again, it's kind of a Forrest Gump moment, I end up close to the front. And when it's over with, and I, I have to say, if you have never heard a recording of Sinatra singing Old Man River. I would, I, I would greatly recommend it. Um, sitting there, I, I, I don't know how, maybe I was 15 or 20 feet away from him at that. Um, literally, the floor in the East Room uh, vibrated from his voice. I, I've never heard anything that ever like it again. Um, and so when he was done, he asked for one of his guys and his, his uh, entourage for a glass of water. And, and I was younger and faster in those days. And I ran over and I grabbed the water. And he was sitting on a bench uh, at the piano. And I proceeded to pour him a glass of water and, and proceeded at the same time to pour it all over his sock. And he was actually very nice about it. I mean, I was very nervous. Um, you know, my dad, had, I, have to, I have to say that my, my dad gave me a philosophy, uh, which was to always remember that they can't eat you. In other words, you might make people unhappy or and they might fire you. But in the end, you try things, do things because they can't eat you. So that was kind of my motto. And, and that led me to sit there with Sinatra. Well, instead of getting mad at me, he, uh, we ended up chatting uh, while he was taking off the sock. And uh, I told him how cool... Uh, his daughter Nancy Sinatra was older. Some of us folks would remember her big hit. These boots, boots are, are made, made for, for walking. walking. Of course, exactly. And and so we had this nice chat. And then he says to me, he goes, you know, he ruffles my hair, and he goes, "Hey kid, you know what? I like you." He goes, "You come out and see me in Vegas sometime." Well, I believed him. <laughs> so I went out. I looked up airfares. You know, I called around and all that to find out that, that my chances of ever going to hang out with the Rat Pack were between zero and none. <laughs> so, right. so how were Frank or Sinatra's... Nice invitation. Were his feet manicured and well-groomed? Because you're probably I, one of the few guys <laughs> who saw his toes up close. Who were, I'm going to ever you know, talk I, to I, him. I, I, 
I, I, I can't I can't even discuss that. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Contractually, <laughs> right. I'm teasing it. You, you know what's interesting? You said that the Nixons and the Ford ones went out of their way to treat the White House staff, I think you used the word nicely, and expose them to as many good things as possible. Um, I, I, I guess before you said that, I didn't even think of that. It, it seems that their reputation is being a little, or at least Nixon's, stodgy and not generous and things like that. But I may be wrong with that. I'm curious to see your take on the Nixons and the Fords as people. Well, I, I think you have a sense, and, and there's a lot more that I wrote in the book about Mrs. Nixon. And you get a sense for her sense of humor, and she had a very generous very kind spirit. Um, I'll tell you about an incident that I had with the, with President Nixon that um, made me, before I had had it, I might have thought differently of him uh, until this occurred. And, and what I used to do is I would go in in the mornings. I worked full-time. I went to school full-time. And I would go in in the mornings through the West Wing so that I could, uh, you know, up the driveway as you see on television. And I would go into the West Wing and I would walk through the Rose Garden um, because sometimes if I timed it just right, I could pass President Nixon in the morning as he went to the Oval Office and I could say good morning, Mr. President, which would make, you know, certainly make my day. Make everyone. And just as an aside on that, and you see a number of these things, I used to walk in every day with a briefcase that was filled with school papers and other things that no one ever checked. That was a, it was a different world back then. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, when you were describing the mail, I, I was thinking that. No right. way. Yeah, no any... envelopes of anthrax yeah. back then. Right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely a different world. But um, so this one morning, I, I didn't have a briefcase. I had a book, and the book was about Theodore Roosevelt, and it said something like that on the cover. And as the president approached, he said, hey, you know, what are you reading? And I said, uh, well, this, Mr. President, this is a book about Theodore Roosevelt. And he started into a soliloquy. I, I, would, I would like to think that it was actually a conversation, but it was more I think I was the only thing around that had a pulse, and he wanted to talk to somebody. But he, was, he spoke for, I, I don't even know how many minutes, but he talked about Theodore Roosevelt, and then he, spoke, he ended up speaking about Winston Churchill. And I relate that in the book, and it was an incredible conversation. He was not, by any extreme, the cardboard character that people had made him out to be. He could not have been more friendly. At the same time, I have to say, and, I, and I've been fortunate to meet a number of presidents over the years, uh, that I have never felt in any human being the kind of electricity, the voltage, that Richard Nixon gave off. And he was absolutely brilliant. Despite Watergate and all of those things, he was an absolutely brilliant man. And uh, But he was very kind in his uh, conversation with me. And uh, he also uh, pointed to me one day on the South Lawn. We were out there. Uh, they were flying off someplace, and the helicopter was out on the South Lawn. And uh, there's a photo of this, a part of this in, in, in the book. And uh, we, members of the East Wing staff had gone out to you know, bid them uh, goodbye. And um, at one point, the president, as he was and Mrs. Nixon were going to the helicopter, pointed at me and, he, and pointed kind of down. And I had no idea what he was 
talking about, and I thought, uh, you know, I'm not going to, I had learned by then better manners than, or, or, or better behavior than to ask, uh, hey, you know, hey, buddy, what do you mean? And uh, so they went on, and I turned around with everybody else to walk back in the White House, and I fell flat on my face. The president was telling me that my shoelaces were untied. That must have been what wow. he was doing. That's but, gr- but they were very nice. The, the Fords were exceptional, it really even more exceptionally nice. I, one of the, uh, I, 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 I talk a lot about the Fords and about some very interesting experiences that I had, particularly with President Ford. Uh, one, one of them was a conversation I had when they threw a picnic for the staff. Um, I, I guess it was in probably in September of 74, Nixon resigned and on, left on August 9th. And uh, they threw a picnic for everybody. And at one point, uh, I ran into the president. And so and he asked me what I did. And I, I told him. And uh, he, he goes, so how do you like uh, you know being a messenger? And I said, fine. How do you like being president? <laughs> he goes, ah, that's a pretty, pretty good job. Not too bad. And then we went, you know, our natural ways. He went off to run the business of the uh, the greatest night nation on earth, and I I went back to the picnic to look for potato salad. So right. <laughs> now I have a question for you. I I don't mean to take the conversation on a giant sort of detour, but the term deep throat, you know, was brought into the I guess common vernacular, uh, and you were right. an adolescent boy, and you saw all this going on. I'm just curious, you know, you being. I know where this or, is going. I, I, well, I, a, I want to know, like, was your mind in the gutter? Did you know what that was at the time? Was it really oh, that sure. big of a movie? And, oh, and you yeah, know, I guess. Yeah, well, I'm sorry. I mean, we've come a long way where you know a major adult film name was like the code word for the informant back then, and now our president is involved in an adult film stars scandal. Or whatever. I mean, that's sort of where we've come to. But I'm just curious what it was like for you with that sort of term bandied about. You know, everybody knew about that movie. Right. <laughs> gotcha. Everybody did. Uh, in fact, there, there are some interesting stories about it that the, the more celebrities that went to go see it, the bigger it got until it became, uh, I guess, just such a huge cash machine. There was some story about the mob having some involvement with that with that movie, and that they got to the point where they were literally uh, just weighing the money; they couldn't even count it. Uh, so sure. everybody knew about I, that. I, I want to take another twist, Don, because <laughs> you've had an amazing career. Obviously, who gets to meet and chit chat with presidents <laughs> and prime ministers, everything. But you had, I guess, I don't know if it's your second career or career after. But after all this in your adult life. Uh, I guess after the breakup of the Soviet Union, you went to, I guess, Eastern Europe or Europe or Russia to help with the free press. And I think that's fascinating. Maybe just give us a little bit of a background on that, because I, 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 I'm just, I have so many questions on that. Well, um, there had been a program that the uh, Bush 41 administration had set up uh, to send media executives uh, to the former states of the former Soviet Union uh, to help them try to build a free and independent press. And after the wall had come down, I, I first went there in 1994, and so the wall had been down for several years, and there was a quasi-free press, but it was at that 
it was still being, all of the presses were owned by the government, so all of the, gov the government did all of the printing. They decided how many pages each newspaper got and those kinds of things. Uh, they, there were still a lot of people that were very afraid, particularly in Russia, and I spent time in Siberia, uh, who were very afraid to ruffle feathers. Basically, what had happened, and I don't want to take this far afield, but, but basically what had happened is that people, in, particularly in Russia, had simply changed their title from whatever they were in the Communist Party now to the Russian Federation. There was really no change in anything. It was the same people doing the same kinds of things. And they were, when given the chance to be able to speak openly, a lot didn't take it. Um, I remember being shocked. I, I grew up during the, you know, I was a little boy during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and, and I lived, you know, during most of all of, all of the Cold War. Uh, I was shocked when a guide that we had who took us to the Kremlin uh, made the comment, she was probably about 20, and made the comment that she thought Yeltsin was a fool. And you would have never heard that before. I had a, a, a friend, as um, the stories in the book, who, well, we sort of got friendly. He had been with the Soviet embassy, uh, and he just suddenly disappeared one day. I ended up with some other friends when I went to Russia uh, who were in the, uh, one guy in particular who had been in the KGB, and uh, actually had been in the Russian embassy in Tehran when our hostages uh, were taken. Um, the, it wasn't, well, I, I have to say that it was difficult to build a, the kind of free press that we and, and Europeans are used to, um, in particular because of the lack of an economy. Um, how these people got through things, I, I have no idea. I only can give them an enormous amount of credit. Everything, everything was squashed, uh, including their, their will to live in a lot of cases. Um, one of the interesting uh, things that happened was that we would have conversations. You've heard about, uh, you know, newspapers that have been sold at kiosks or in out of racks. Not, not any more today, but that was a huge element of newspaper distribution around the world. And we ended up in, in a meeting uh, in which money was being discussed. I mean, not like we were going to buy anything or it just had to do with what they were charging for the paper and that kind of thing. All of a sudden, a guy comes in in the worst looking Italian knockoff suit you ever saw. Dopey looking guy comes and sits in the back and leans forward so you can see the butt of his revolver hanging out. The mob was all over the place. They were in front of every restaurant. They were in any many of the conversations that we had. They just kind of show up, and everybody was scared of them for obvious reasons. Um, the but these these folks um, really did everything that they they, they were very courageous. Uh, we we bought a press for one lady. Uh, who became a regional printer, and that lasted for a while until uh, until the the Yeltsin regime came to an end, and and then Putin clamped down on everything. But um, it was it was very interesting. I mean, and then I had you know a, a whole series of very odd because I am Forrest Gump, a, a lot of very odd circumstances, including we spent a night in a uh, a sane asylum <laughs> in Siberia one night 
that was guarded by sheep herders. <laughs> wow. So I relate a lot of those. Uh, Sounds like a fun night. <laughs> well, Don, I can't thank you enough. Everyone, here's the book again, downstairs at the White House. Uh, it, it, I bought it on Amazon. You could buy it anywhere. It's a quick read. It's a great read. Uh, Don, thank you very, very much for taking your time. And you're a true uh, front row seat of history. It's amazing the experiences you've had. Well, and I've had others, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna be right. 9/11 and, and the first bombing of uh, the World Trade Center and a number of other things. I, I don't know why it happens, but it, it just seems to happen. Well, well, we'll definitely have you back. I thank you very much. I feel bad we're out of time. There's so many stories I wanted to get to, but that's the way it goes sometimes. Thanks. Thank Don. you again, everyone. Thank you. We'll see you next week, Todd. I will see you next week, my friend. Yes, Everyone, Jack. I want you to go out there, hug your family, hug your loved ones, and hug your friends. Give everyone yeah. a big hug from us. Have a great Thank week. Thank you, everyone. Take care. Bye. Bye.